Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Nick Stacey podcast show. Of course, I'm Nick Stacey, and this is episode number 11. It's my job to help you all improve your knowledge surrounding business, health, wealth, cryptocurrencies, and blockchains. And I do this by discussing my successes and failures, but also interviewing great people from many diverse fields to simply break down what makes them the best at what they do by understanding their habits, routines, philosophies, beliefs, and asking their opinion on various topics. Now, this episode was a very special one to me. Um, I had the pleasure of recording this in a place called the Levi Roots Caribbean Smokehouse, situated in Stratford City in London. Now, the Levi Roots Smokehouse is actually owned by a gentleman called Levi Roots, which many of you have probably heard of, I am sure. Uh, He's very well known for his appearance about 10 years ago on the famous BBC2 show Dragon's Den. Levi managed to gain investment from two of the Dragons, more particularly um, well-known Peter Jones. They invested in him and his product called the Reggae Reggae Sauce, which of course, again, I'm sure all of you have tried, and if you haven't, you really, really must do so. Now, the reason I wanted to interview Levi is, for me, he has been quite an inspiration, and in fact, he's one of the main reasons I decided to become uh, a businessman or an entrepreneur, as some of you may like to call it. I felt when I watched the TV program, I was about, let's think, I was 19 or 20 years old. And at the time, I wasn't really sure which kind of direction I was going in life. I was still in the military, uh, but I had established by then that it probably wasn't something that I really wanted to do for the rest of my life as much as I enjoyed it. And watching Levi go on to the Dragon's Den and pitching this to the Dragons and actually getting the investment for this product made me realise that if this very authentic, genuine man could gain investment from such prolific businessmen, then I felt that I really had a chance at becoming and doing something for myself or, you know, at least getting close to this kind of level. So that's my main reason for for interviewing Levi. And in actual fact, Levi does a lot for children and entrepreneurs across the country. Uh, goes into schools talking about entrepreneurship, uh, mindset and attitude towards life uh, and, of course, business. Uh, he's released a few books over the last few years. He's also appeared on the BBC programme Death in Paradise very recently and seems to be adding more and more to his portfolio of success. There's some very interesting stories here. Um, He used to be friends with Bob Marley, and he has sung a particular song to the well-known Nelson Mandela. Amongst many other things, he talks about his childhood in Jamaica and what it was like to move to Brixton, and gives some advice on business for youngsters and people that are currently entrepreneurs, or even anybody that's thinking to become an entrepreneur. So listen, guys, I really hope you enjoy this one. Um, Please do at the end. uh, Please leave me some comments or send emails. I'll leave you details on how you can do that at the very end of the podcast. But let's not waste any more time. Please enjoy. Okay, welcome, Levi. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I'm really, really grateful for you inviting me over to your restaurant. And I've just tasted some of your lovely food. Um... I hope you don't mind. I'm going to open with a question from when you were younger, um, back in your roots, pardon the pun, back in Jamaica. Um, I wanted to understand a little bit more about your childhood in Jamaica and living with your grandma. 
and I've always been really interested to know your change of faith from Christianity to uh, Rastafari and, and where you are with that now in your life. But if you can explain to me what it was like being a child living in Jamaica um, back then as compared to what it is you know, nowadays uh, here in the UK and what you know, the differences that there are from Jamaica then to now. Paradise, I suppose, is, is, is the first word that comes to mind. And especially as a, a young boy, you know, back then, my most vivid memories is perhaps when I was about 10, 10 mm -hmm. years old, and in most memories are retained from yeah. those days. Um, even though I, I remember when my mom and dad left, when I was about seven, seven years old, I actually remember that. Mm -hmm. but, but my vivid memories of my grandma sort of have been a big influence on my life because of my mom and dad, of course, wasn't there. Okay. Um, because they had left to come to the UK at that, at that point. Um, I bet that was tricky at 10. Yeah, well, 10, it was, it's the time when you're, you're discovering, isn't it? You're, yeah. you're knowing who you are and you're aware of things more than, you know, when you're sort of six or seven. You know, mm. 10 is when your eyes, your eyes start to open, you start to ask all sorts of questions. And when I was asking questions, that like, where's mum and dad? But, yeah. um, over the years, my ma, I, I got so used to grandma that she became mum and dad in, in certain ways. And we lived in this most idyllic place, countryside in Jamaica. Where I always explain a bit like an idyllic place where you have jumping fish and lakes <laughs> yeah. and every tree that you, you see. Is that what you, you thought? Yeah. You know, that's, that's, what, that's where we lived. Yeah. Know? Every tree had the fruit on there, every lake had fish. You didn't even wow. have to have bait to, to catch fish as kids. Yeah. You know, you just stick your hand in and you, know, you, could, you could, you know, pick out your pick lunch. Pick it out, yeah. Uh, and it was, it was just fantastic and I thought I would never leave. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't aware that every year I would see one of my brothers leave because I was too young to still understand what was going yeah, on. Yeah. Um, that eventually my time would come. Mm -hmm. um, but I had that break of time to spend with grandma and I suppose that's why those early years are so valuable, valuable to me. Um, not just because of the cooking that she brought into my life and she, she sort of you know, exposed me to life. But it's the, I suppose it's that grounding that yeah. I feel as a Jamaican boy. Um, because I think if I didn't spend that enough time there, I couldn't claim to be a Jamaican really, apart from <laughs> yeah. being born there. Yeah, but true. I think by the time you're 11, 12, whatever you get in life and whoever you get it from, it inspires you for the rest of your days. Mm. Yeah, and I agree. I, I'm so glad that I got that time to spend in Jamaica and with my grandma who inspired me. Mm. Yeah. Because I think because my parents had been over the UK here, discovering a whole new world themselves because yeah. they had never travelled. Yeah, so with coming to the UK was the first the time UK, they ever left, they left, Jamaica. left Jamaica. Wow, yeah. So for them it was also about discovery as well and, and having their kids with them and having to buy a house and get a job. Mm, and, yeah, it must have been challenging. And one more kid, a, a young baby now, mm. I think that would have even been a bit more challenging, yeah. challenging for them. So, you know, for me, I thought I would never leave. My time would never come. But, you know, as, you know, fortune goes, my time did come to leave, you mm. know, and my parents thought it was time for me now as the baby to finally come home. And so, how old were you when you came to the UK? I was 11 and a bit. I spent a little bit of time in primary school, so yeah. it wasn't that long, so I suppose I was just 11 or so. And how did you find that change? I mean, culturally, that must have been a shock. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can imagine taking a kid out from that who mm. could never seen, seen or experienced any other life but that very sort of idyllic, small in a bubble, like country life, farm life. Like you say, life, paradise. paradise. Yeah. And, and 
coming here in, in winter was perhaps mm. the wrong time to choose. <laughs> was it winter? Back. You came? Absolutely winter. Um, you must have thought you'd gone to hell. about those days that most people that I speak to that came over to the came in, in the winter, yeah. Um, probably the most memorable part, though, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Or, or probably cheapest flights or something like that why people always yeah. chose that time. And um, yeah, I, I came over and it was my world was turned upside down. First of all, it was cold. Yep. Um, and I've never experienced anything but beautiful sunshine and hot weather. Yeah. I miss my grandma. I didn't mm. know these two people that was now mum and dad. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and I didn't connect with my brothers because they were traitors. They had left me. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they changed a lot as well. And they changed. Yeah. Just, yeah. Absolutely. They changed and they have now become English and they could speak. They could speak this, you know, this, as we call it in Jamaica, speaky spoky. Um, which in Jamaica, you know, yes, yeah. in Jamaica, you know, we still speak English, but it's patois. Yeah, yeah. But it's a little bit more faster. And, it's a bit more fun. Yeah, a bit more fun. <laughs> but actually, I struggled because it, in those days, it was time when you didn't want to be speaking patois. Right, okay. Here. And, and my brothers and sisters, they were now speaking English. Yeah. And it was nice. And here I was, this kid straight <laughs> yeah. from the country. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and everything, you know. And it was just really, really difficult to fit in, not only at home, but at school as well. Yeah. I struggled because I couldn't read or write. You know, wow, okay. That didn't involve stuff when I was... No. When I was growing up. Grandma was just to look after me. Yeah. Um, education didn't come down to the youngest. My brothers and sisters were educated. Yeah. They went to school. But but I didn't. Yeah. And then, so when I came here, I was totally wrong. Yeah. So going into school where everybody else had gone through the system, and me landing, parachuting, straight in, in secondary school without... So you went straight into secondary straight school? Straight into secondary school. Wow. Like, I spent a couple of months in primary. Yeah. My mum managed to swindle me just to get me in. Yeah. But I think before I knew anything, it was to the secondary school. I was straight in. So that must have been tough. Well, tough because I couldn't spell my first name. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, surely, uh, particularly children of that age can be quite tough. So did, did you it, find a lot of... Well, absolutely. Because in those days, the school didn't actually gear itself towards kids like me. Nowadays, it is, you know, if, if, if you're challenged mm. curriculum-wise, the system, you know, it has things in place to, to, to pay attention to. Exactly, you, yeah. Supposed to be. yeah. But in those days, it was, you're at the back of the class. It, I mean, it, I don't think it was intentional, but it, it was rough in those days. And, and I think kids that sat at the back of the class didn't get enough attention. Yeah, And so of course, right. I was at the back of the class because yeah. I wasn't one of the bright ones. You know, that was at the front. And, and of course, that as well as you try, me trying to be the cool kid. Because when you can't be at the front to be cool and you're at the back, you've got to find something to do to pay That's attention, right. to get yeah. some attention. Yeah. Not from the teacher, but from your peers. Yeah. Because you, you want to be liked. You, exactly. You, you want something, you can't join in. Yeah, else, you've got to stand out as your own you unique person, out, haven't you? Yeah. And, and I use my skills. I, I, the only thing that I knew was the skill of contribute. You know, yeah. that was very brave in doing things and can do the natural things, you mm -hmm. know, that kids find difficult to do, like know about food and fruits and, yeah. <laughs> how, you know, how to manipulate, manipulate, manipulate yourself around things like opening a bottle very quickly or yeah, yeah. <laughs> climbing a tree faster than anyone else, yeah. or, you know, being a bit more daring. Mm -hmm. 
that was how I managed to, to try and stay my head above the water. But inevitably, that got you into trouble as well. Um, because of course, then, yeah. Particularly back then too, yeah. Absolutely, because you become a follower. Mm. You know, you're not a leader when you're like that. You become somebody who follows the crowd because you want to be liked. Yeah, yeah. And that's even worse because you want to prove yourself more than anybody else. So hence, you get in trouble a little bit more. That's right. So for me, now when I hover above myself and I look down at my myself there yeah. and I could see exactly what was happening. Yeah. Wanting to be laughed yeah. and not wanting to be laughed at and you, you know, you, you get into a lot of trouble. I understand. So just going back a little bit to back in, in Jamaica with your grandma, yeah. um, obviously she's had a big effect on your life and your career. Yeah. Um, what kind of what kind of childhood was it there? I mean I know particularly it was Clarendon, wasn't it? You were Clarendon, Clarendon yeah. that's it, yeah. And it was quite even now it's good for fishing no yeah, no for yeah, fishing yeah. so would you would you see yourself as quite wealthy in jamaica would you your no. grandma quite wealthy family or absolutely we were we were poor we yeah. were perhaps the poorest of the there's mm -hmm. always others worse off than, than yourself of course but um as i said we we didn't we never had enough um grandma could just about survive. Was it just your grandma on just her own? Wow, her okay. Own. She, yeah. she had the charge of looking after six children. Okay. And how did she um, make a living? She just, she just was grandma. You know, just she, hustled. She hustled. Yeah. In in the way of hustling, like she would tie tobacco in those days. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, she would, um, she would do corn. People would bring bags of corn. As a kid, we used to have bags of corn in the house. You know, every evening, yeah. the, the women of the village would get together and they'd be shelling corn, and my grandma would be in the middle of that, <laughs> tying tobacco. So any little thing, any little job that would come around, that's what my grandma would do. Mm -hmm. Because her daughter was off with her husband to the UK. To right, send, yeah. You know, so, so there was to, nobody to, else. Yeah. Nobody else, and yeah. that was the dream. Yeah. Because I suppose my parents' plan was to do that and then for them to come back. And then to make with some wealth happy and family with wealth, yeah. grandma and everyone yeah. else. But it, it, it never turned out like no, that. It did not. My dad never came back and I don't suppose anyone um, in those days yeah, that why left would in the Caribbean they, yeah. came, came back. Didn't do that plan, you know. All the family stayed, 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 stayed. So it was a very poor life, you know. Mm. And again, it was, it was country life, you know, and it was 60s, it was late 60s, early 70s. Um, so yeah, it, it was just like any other time. Yeah. And even when we did manage to come over here to the UK, it was worse. Oh it yeah, I can imagine it was. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because the weather, for once, you know, you, you, you got to adjust to that. For adjust one. Adjust to the yeah. weather, and we didn't get. You, you had to buy everything. You could survive in, in Clarendon, where you were just by. As I said, every tree carried a fruit. You could never be hungry. Exactly. Really. Yeah. You can be hungry yeah. for the things that you really want. Yeah, the materialistic the sort materialistic of things. Thing, but yeah. for the necessities of life, it was there. You never, you never wanted. I said my granny was very poor, but we never really suffered. Yeah, because it was available fine. naturally. Yeah. When we, when we, when eventually, when the family is here, we realise that there isn't a fruit tree around the back. Where you can go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there isn't a lake around the back where <laughs> I can after school. I can go and provide my own tea. Yeah, you could try. If I was in but... Jamaica, I would preparate enough to make tea for me. Mm. I would often go out and catch some fish or two fruits <laughs> or whatever, and I'd be happy. Seeing the <laughs> serpentine in Hyde Park <laughs> catching fish. Yeah. <laughs> so quickly, we, the hardship was even worse here. You had mm -hmm. to work harder. Yeah. But, but I suppose, I think having the family together was the only grail of what my parents eventually wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And they did that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So. 
as I've said already, the, the change of faith. For me, this is something that's quite important because uh, I, I don't have a faith myself. I yeah. just believe in, uh, you have your own faith, faith in myself and my family. So changing from Christianity to Rastafari, yeah. how did that come about? Well, oh, wow. Especially being, having <laughs> Christianity imposed. And I know Chris, Christianity in Jamaica is you know, very, very, yeah. you go to church on a Sunday and it's, it's built into you. So how did that change? It was a rebel. It was a it was a rebellious thing. But when you go to Rastafara, you're yeah. rebelling okay. because it's the, one of the most difficult life. When you say when you say you're, you're choosing a faith, there in those days, Rastas was the pariah of Jamaica. They were being murdered. The really? Absolutely. Oh, I didn't know that. Rastas was being murdered by the government. It, if you had dreadlocks, yeah. the government could put out a warning saying, Really? Says, Absolutely. Wow. They were cutting everybody dreadlocks. It was, it was the most terrible That's terrible, thing yeah. To be a Rasta. But this is what the faith was. Yeah. And this is what attracted me. Anarchy. It was, yeah. I, it was, it was you stepping out and saying, I don't feel comfortable over there. You know, I want to I wanna be where I feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. It was a time of when, I suppose, America was getting a lot of attention to do to do with you know, Martin Luther King and awareness and everything yep. like that. Yep. But before that, there was a man called Marcus Garvey in yep. Jamaica. Yeah, who had, of him. Who had, he was one of the first, even before the American mm -hmm. uprising, had been pre preaching this thing about find a black Jesus type thing. You mm -hmm. know? Don't put your trust over here. Yep. The Chinese have a Chinese that God that looks like them. You know, the <laughs> oh, white okay, man has a yeah. God that looks like them. So, it's a kind of a backwards like version. Yes, and he was saying that then we have to look for an inspiration that looks like us as African to take, a, to yep. take us back to Africa. Okay. And then when His Majesty was crowned, King Selassie was was, was crowned emperor. Yeah. You know, before that, Marcus Garvey had said that we look to Africa for the crowning okay. of a black king. Right. Because okay. in yep. him we will find our our own redeemer. So, something of like that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then when when the emperor was now crowned. I think Jamaicans, and some Jamaicans saw that as the prophecy of saying, well, here is a man now who's a crown emperor. Mm -hmm. Even the queen, our queen here, was near at its coronation. And there's a that famous picture sense. of her yeah. actually bowing, bowing down to I've King seen King. it, yeah. 72 different nations, King came and bowed down to this man. And it just made Marcus Garvey's prophecy to certain Rastas that were looking for a black, a black yep. messiah saw his majesty has now this is it this happened. is it this has yeah. happened we have somebody yeah. powerful around the world the queen of england has gone to bow down and so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can, actually i can see how you yeah. yeah and so yeah so that's how the, the faith became strong it was born before that yeah but it became strong when the crown of his imperial yep. majesty and now rastafari was born and i suppose by the time it got down to me years and years later yeah. it was through bob marley's music yeah because th that news had to get around somehow. And I suppose Jamaican had birthed this music of reggae. It first started off with ska and all that, which was more songs about American stuff. But when mm -hmm. it became reggae, this became the conveyor of the Rastafari culture. Mm -hmm. This is how it was brought around to the world. Because 90% of music that was coming from Jamaica then in the 70s was largely about Rastafari. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was Rastas that was singing. Yeah, it was. So the message got out. And I suppose Bob Marley became that figurehead, that most famous face of Rastafari. Yeah. And he inspired the world. And, and little still does me, now. Absolutely. And me. Little yeah. Me listened to his album when I was Yeah, still do and, now. And, yeah. And, and Times of Sadness, yeah. I always put Bob Marley on. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I found solace in this man's music and what he mm. was saying and, and everything else. And we couldn't hear a lot was coming from America because we were secluded in this UK bubble. bubble. There was lots of stuff happening over there. Yeah. But we in the UK, the only thing that we could gain a little strength from was the music coming from Jamaica. And Bob Marley became a massive influence on, on my life in school. Hence me to turn my back on my Christianity upbringing. You know, okay, which yeah. my, my parents had honed into me. My grandma was so a So your parents were still Christian as well, yeah. My mum is a great, great, because my grandma, I mean, I grew up around her in the church. Mm. I, I even remember, and even now my mum reminds me that a lot of people used to fancy me being actually a preacher. Did they? Because at such a young age, I sold such much for singing and music and yeah, wanted yeah. to be around my grandway. <laughs> and um, <laughs> became what Christianity didn't really like either. Yeah. Because Rasta was the rebel, you know. Rasta was putting everything that Christianity had said in a bag and saying, actually... Rubbish. Rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. This is what it is. Yeah. And so there was a, con there was a conflict there. So, as you mentioned Bob Marley, you kind of lead me on to the next part. Um, I know you've had a friendship with Bob Marley when he resided here in the UK. Please, please tell me a lot more about that. I have, I have some experience, obviously, in, I'm, I'm 31, so yeah. I, I wasn't really around to be able to experience that. But I've seen Ziggy Marley uh, play numerous times at the festivals, and I was fortunate enough to go backstage on a Sunday night where he played and sit with him and a few other people and have yeah. a chat and go through stuff. But I'm really interested to know um, any funny experiences you've had yeah. with Bob Marley. <laughs> Tell me a bit about that because you know it's something that every, everyone's obsessed with Bob Marley, aren't they? Let's face yeah, it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I never get tired of dropping that that story there. Okay, uh, for me, it's such an inspirational one as well. But I suppose I would start it is it's through the same in all Rastafari culture and the music, because if if you if you were involved in these two things here in the UK, mm -hmm. you were in the center of what what is transpired to be now. You know, because I think reggae music has inspired so many people now that what we see, the music that we listen there. to now is all inspired by roots and culture music back yeah. then. Yeah. And we were in it, I was in a sound system called Sir Coxon. Okay. And Sir Coxon's sound was the top major sound system here in the UK. Sure. Meaning we did what radio station did for music. Mm -hmm. If Bob Marley did a song, for instance, if he recorded a song, he would want to give that music first a sound system. Okay. To play it in the dance hall. Yeah, to yeah, find of course. Out yeah. Dance hall. That yeah. would be called a dub plate. That's no, yeah, yeah. Dub plate yeah. started from. 45. Right. So yeah. sound systems were really, really popular amongst big artists. I mean, however big you are, if you wanted your music to be played in a dance hall, where, which is, I suppose, what the radio is now, which yeah. is how people would connect with the music, you had to give to the sound system up front. And then the sound system would play it in the dance. And then you could see the reaction to people when it plays, when it gets played on a dub plate. Meaning that and then a, you know it's going to be a, you know it's gonna be a hit. hit. Or you yeah. know, may not, I may not be putting that one on the album. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we became really, really good friends with all the top artists. Because mm -hmm. if they came to the UK, they would have to come to the top sound system cool. to party yeah. and to hear how their music is played. Mm -hmm. And of course, Bob used to come to our club in the West End. Yeah, yeah. For Colombo's. 
Colombo. It's our, our, yeah. our club in Carnaby Street. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first, perhaps the first reggae club in, in the West. I think State. it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was owned by our boss, Larry wow, Coxon. Cool. Yeah. Uh, well, his sound system played in there. And um, yeah, and so we, we got to know Bob quite well. Um, when he would come here and be re- recorded, we would go up to Highland House with him and with the band, and you know, and really, really get to know the band and him. And he used to love football, as you know, you know. Yeah. And, and at one stage, there was a regular match on a Sunday. Yeah. You know, <laughs> in Battersea Park. Oh, okay. Where the Whalers would be playing against a varieties of different people. You know, yeah. you'd probably see, you know, some some of the well-known punk rock and, and you know and artists of the time yeah. you know, be playing. But occasionally it would be Rastas and it'd be just the Whalers be playing. And whenever that happens, they would send for us because our sound system lived in Battersea, yeah. which is just the, the connection it's between not, where Bob yeah. Marley lived over in Chelsea side. Okay. And then we would connect in the middle of Battersea together. <laughs> and it would be a match between Cox and Sound, which is our group, yeah. and Bob Marley and the Whalers. <laughs> and I, I played sort of central defence at, at the time. Right, okay. Bob is a great midfield player. Yeah. Fantastic, a bit like a Mar- Maradona. Quick Short, runner, wasn't he? Quick yeah. runner, hard to move off the ball. Getting a very yeah. low, low sense of gravity. Yeah. And kicks the ball to his feet. And a fantastic player. Yeah. His coach was one of Jamaica's great, not the Jamaica's greatest baller, a guy called Skill Cole, Alan Skill Cole. Okay. Was Jamaica's national team manager and everything, and he was Bob's manager at the time. So Bob had great predicates at football. Yeah. And I remember him always coming at me with the ball, you know, and he's coming at me, and my friends would be shouting, "Get him, Levi! Get him! Get him! Get him!" Get him. Yeah. But, you know, you can never catch him. <laughs> no, no, I could never catch him. I didn't really want to catch him. Not that I probably I could, <laughs> but in my own self. I just never wanted to hurt the man. <laughs> because I always tell the story, but my heroes in the game in those days, you know, were Ron Chopper Harris and okay. you're too young to know. No, no, guys, I know Chopper Harris. Yeah, yeah. Guys, I'm not defense. too young, believe me. I love my reggae, so you're fine. Yeah. Well, those were my heroes, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And really hard, you know, players in the game and defensive players. So if I was playing hard in those days, I'd really go for it. But whenever time Bob got the ball, you know, and I think it went for everybody that was playing on his opposite side, you were a little bit softer than him. Yeah, because <laughs> it's, yeah, it's Bob, you know, come on. Bob, well, okay, yeah, you know, yeah. the yeah, yeah. break up his legs. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more of just of a fun game, I, I said. But he was a serious player. Yeah. Because he loved the game. Uh-huh. You know, but that was my most vivid place. Me always pulling out attackers and stuff and then ended up losing, you know, three, four nil and um, Bob scoring two or three or scoring <laughs> a trick, you know, on, on the day. But always having a great talk afterwards. Um, one of my most treasured you know, piece of memorabilia is a T-shirt that he, he actually took off someone else, oh, okay. um, and and gave it to me. I got it off. It was off his one of his first album called Natty Dread. Still got it. I still got it. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. It's washed, a bit washed out. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, but still there. Yeah, I still treasure that, treasure that every day. You know, so that's that's one of my most you know um, overtold stories. <laughs> yeah, of me playing football with Bob Marley, but it, it is a cool one. Yeah, no, it is a cool one. So. <laughs> You played with Bob Marley musically? Have you ever played? No, absolutely no. Um, that would have been the only great. Yeah, quite uh, yeah. But, but Bob was a real professional, you know. He, yeah. He wasn't a man that you could... Nowadays, you know, artists... Kind could of a jam. Have a jam. No, he was, he was a proper... When, when he's rehearsing, they rehearse. Yeah. You know, it's not like... You know, he sang jamming, and jamming means that, oh, you just come along and you play and all that. But 
he was strategic. It's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. I think everybody sees, you know, Bob Marley, reggae, uh, and and the, the phrase jamming. Yeah. You know, my my perception of it all was, you know, everyone would chill out in in, in a room somewhere, smoke These a joint, guys, play some music. But that's everyone's fantasy, isn't it? I think. The fantasy yeah. Of it. These guys had the most fantastic musicians, leaders. Let me tell you this: it was yeah. all done proper. One of Bob's greatest teacher was 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 past, I'm trying to remember his name here now, but um, Joe Higgs. Okay. Joe Higgs. This guy was a teacher. When you're in rehearsal with these guys, they're not messing about and, you know, laughing and joking. You're yeah, you're doing a job. Serious. Doing yeah. a job. And that's the school that, that he comes from. You know, you're in the ghetto and all that kind of stuff and there's gunshots around you and everything. But here's this guy, Joe Higgs, has got a music school with Bob Marley and Bonnie Ray. And <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. school and they're proper. The brass section that we, we love in Jamaica, because horns plays a lot mm -hmm. in Jamaica's mm -hmm. music. You know, that's coming from a, a, another uh, alpha boy school. Okay. You know, and they teach music really proper. I mean, sheet music. Yeah. So when we hear Jamaican music, and, and like I said, people think because it's surrounded, yeah, I think it's all just Bob whatever. Smokes a pound of weed a exactly. Day, yeah. No, did he smoke a pound of weed today? He probably did. Yeah. <laughs> he probably did. But when it comes to his music, yeah. you know, these guys are very serious. serious yeah. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. I mean, their their works phenomenal, isn't it? It goes on forever, so that you can't just do that backhandedly. Yeah. It's got to be done properly, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. So, music in your life. I think everybody knows, a lot of my listeners will, that that's a big part of your life. Uh, particularly, I don't want to bore you too much, you know, you came on Dragon's Den and that's where I guess everybody heard of you originally. Uh, and you came on playing guitar, so everybody understands this music. So where did that come from? I know, you know, was there gospel back in um, yeah, Jamaica? Is that kind of where you started to bring music in? Yeah, I think that the love of the music was from the grandma days. Yeah. She was a singer in the Baptist church. She did a duet with my grandfather. So we in the oh, house okay. grew up around knowing that you know there is music in the family. Yeah. So I knew that I had a voice and I could sing and I understood notes mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But because of trying to catch up too much when I came to the UK, my mind was trying to educate myself because I was so far behind. Yeah. I didn't pick up on the fact that there was one thing that I think that I am good at. Um, and it's, it's in the blood because yeah. most of the family, my mom is a good singer as well, has a great voice, and so it's, it's there. Yeah. But I was too busy trying to, the fact that I couldn't read or write. Trying to fit I in. Couldn't fit in yeah. and trying to catch up with everyone else. And my mom was busy trying to educate me as well because when I left school, I went to another school because I went home to school because she taught me. Really, how I learned to read and write and be able to write eight books now and then written. Yeah, I know, yeah. It's my mom. Right, because okay. I was at school messing about trying to be cool, but, but she and she she noticed that. So when I got home, she actually picked up the the, 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 the schoolwork that you're missing, and, yeah. And, and we did that. So I was too a bit too busy doing that to, to, for the music to come through. It wasn't until again when I left school and I think I started to struggle a little bit. Okay. My mom again now saw that. And she came to the rescue again because she brought a guitar, which is the same guitar um, that I brought at the Dragon's Day. Oh, really? Okay. In, yeah. In those days, it cost her absolute fortune, but she knew I needed something to to give me to hold on to. You know, um, she brought the guitar in Brixton in a in a it's called, uh, exchange and mart. Really? In Brixton, yeah. Wow. Colaba Lane. And she brought that, and she brought a Beatles book of songs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
T Beatles book of songs that just showed you how to hold the chords and, and everything like that. Yeah, basic, the basic chords, yeah. yeah. And she sort of says, concentrate on that. Wow. So, and that was it? <laughs> that was it. I taught myself just by, you know. So from there, you know, you play, is it, is it what I'm right in saying you play with James Brown? With James Brown, Maxi Priest, Cicela Luciana, all, all my heroes, Black Ahuru, which is one of Jamaica's greatest bands. Incredible. Which was always one, yeah. one of my dreams to do that, and I managed to, to work with Michael Rose. So the music was always dormant there, so I, if my mum brought it back by spotting that I needed something to, to kind of to, mm. to, to inspire me. Um, and, yeah, yeah. And, and something, you know, I expect your mum was very proud of this. Um, you sung Happy Birthday, Mr. President, yeah, uh, Nelson Mandela, Mandela, didn't you? Yeah. That's what was that like? Man, oh, what was it like, like meeting wow. Nelson Mandela? <laughs> wow. You know, they talk about moments in your life, you mm. know, that you, that you just think never happened. Yeah. You, you will hear someone else talk about it. And you'll be in a room and hear it and you say, wow, did you oh, that? I bet that, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've never done it. Yeah. That's one of them. Meeting yeah. Nelson Mandela singing happy birthday, shaking yeah. his hand and having a conversation Incredible. with a man. Wow. I was in Brixton. I was in, I was in, the, in the throng of, you know, 10,000 people just like everyone else went to see the great man yeah. as a pilgrimage when he came to Brixton. Yeah. Not thinking that anything other than that, I'm lucky if I ever get within a few hundred yards to see him. So this wasn't planned, did it? Not planned at all. I just, just, I just went, went as a, you know, Brixtonian yeah, yeah. myself. Yeah. I had a, a, a clothes shop in Brixton at the time. Okay. And I closed up. I closed up the shop and walked the 200 meters down the road. Yeah. To where, so to where he was. was. In the recreation center. And I was spotted in the crowd by one of the security guards. Really? They were looking for people to sing happy birthday to, like a, a few school just children a few people, and yeah. people like yeah. to get happy birthday. And he spotted me as a as Brixton singer music connection. So he knew that you were a yeah. connection to do music. Yeah. So sort of did a Paul Levi let him get together. <laughs> yeah. And he pointed at me and I kind of got crowd surfed because I was so far back that people kind of helped me sort of crunch you. And before I knew it, I was I was inside the recreation centre waiting at the bottom of the escalator because he was upstairs having a chat with some school kids. Yeah. And the plan was he would come down the escalator and myself and a few other people that I'd gathered to sing happy birthday would be at the bottom with the birthday cake. Uh, yeah, right. And, okay. and I was given the cake. Where are you? And as he came down, I was singing happy birthday, Mr. President, I was sweating. Yeah. And um, I always say that the only other moment in my eyes then was Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought here I was doing the bloody thing. Yeah, yeah. The great man. Shook his hand. Gave him a little message. I think that's a welcome, Mr. President, to the people from Brixton. Yeah. That's the fire. Yeah. And I shook his hand and handed over the cake. And it was like, wow. Have you got any pictures of that? Never. Never? Never, ever. I put out so many posts of, wow. It's just one of these moments, you know, that's just... Just happens, lived. flash. Yeah, just yeah. Happens, yeah, of course, you know, there wasn't camera phones back then, was there? It was, wish, you know, it was get the film like, out quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I knew somebody must have something that one day I'll... I'll we'll find I'll it, yeah. 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 But yeah, it's, it, it is one of the most fantastic moments in my life. But yeah, it's, um, so in Brixton, um, you know, we've already covered this a little bit before we started recording, but um, 
you know, I think as boys, we all get into trouble, don't we? We've yeah. all had a bit of run-ins with the police, but, you know, we've all been there and done that, me probably more than, than most, but how did it come about? You know, you got arrested for uh, assaulting a police officer. What happened there? It was a riot, son. Okay. You know, Brixton was a terrible place in those days. You yeah. Know, in the 70s, people were crying out for change. It's quite yeah. race, racial things. Yeah, racial yeah. thing. There was there was no jobs, you know, jobs right around the country. But I suppose when they brought in the suspect laws, that was aimed at just black youth. Yeah, you find that areas like Brixton and Hackney and wherever just you know, focused you know, on that. It was just focused on that, and you couldn't exist. You couldn't get a job. The, the, the whole area was classed as a no-go area. Right, so if okay. if you live in Brixton at the time, if you yeah. live in, in any of those kind of areas, you were completely secluded from the society. Really? Um, if, I, if I wanted a job and I wanted to give my address for a job in those days, I couldn't put Brixton. I'd have to probably say Anne Hill, which is like the leafier part of SW9. Because the minute you say Brixton, yeah. then absolutely, there, there is no chance. So it, that was terrible, and people wanted change, and I, and I suppose the riots were a result of that. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I suppose it did brought change because when I look at Brixton now, it was totally because of, of of things like that that happened. Yeah. People rebelled, and, and, and change came. But yeah, we got involved because we thought that without without us making a noise in our own way, no one's going to come around and bring any attention. And someone did come around, because yeah. it was a man called Lord Scarman, mm-hmm. you know, who mm-hmm. did the famous Scarman report. Yeah. Uh, and and th- I think that was the the, the the catalyst of the changes that went in to make sure more attention was paid to the police, mm. and they took away the sus laws, and even though it's still it's still around now in certain guises, it is, in different guises. Yeah. But, um, Definitely not as bad as it used to be. I just think it gets out in the media a lot more now. But I mean, like I've just made the, the thing and I look at Brixton now, and Brixton is completely changed. It's very know. prosperous, Where isn't it? Where used to be a no-go here is now Flowers Garden. Yeah, it's lovely place. It's lovely. Um, but it was it was because of consequences like me being thrown in the back of a van um, because we wanted to change and we're saying, yeah, we're going to take to the streets and, and make noises. You know, and, um, and how did you get treated by the police? I always hear of stories, and uh, you might be able to clarify this, but I hear of the police back then. Police were no friends of black youths back then in the 70s. Yeah. They were absolutely no, no friends, and you knew it, and you were expected to be treated. To be really? Treated yeah. There, there was no you know, police con- control or police, what they call a PCCR where you could write to us. There was nothing in, in those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You Victim support. You, yeah. you took your beat, then, and then you either learn from that. Did they or give you, you a don't. beating? Well, absolutely. I've Did they? Many a time. Yeah. Uh, um, my blood has been splattered in prison as a young kid. Really? <laughs> many, many occasions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but, but you cannot avoid the system. Mm. You daren't because you live there. Yeah. And and if you did try to be different, you you don't survive. Um, and that's how I managed to, to survive in some ways. But Brixton was a place where you, you either learn or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad I... Sink or swim, I guess. Yeah, and I think I, 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 I went through it and I learned in the end. Yeah. So... Okay. <laughs> in your past in Brixton, um, being Rastafari, uh, obviously cannabis is quite yeah. a, a well-known drug for that, that, yeah. that faith, let's say. Do you have any relationship with drugs in your past? Never. I think Rastas, well, true Rastas, 
Yeah, I mean, because maybe there's another fantasizable part of it. Yeah, I'm sure. yeah. True. I mean, I grew up surrounded myself through real rasters. I mean, through music and sound systems. You're talking about something you call. It was more of a religious sect than anything else. These rasters, and yeah. you wouldn't be allowed to bring things like drugs into the world, in, in, into that world where we were. Oh, okay. It just wasn't allowed. We were we were never open to it. I think I was saved in the eighties by by when when it sort of burst out in the eighties and everybody was a crack and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Then, Rasters didn't really go through that. No. You know, Rasters was still doing the cannabis thing and was still saying, this is where we are had to smell medicinal to us. This is something very special to us. It's not about drugs. Yeah. And we will always stick by that. Yeah. And we stuck that out right throughout the whole Aryan situation that happened right across the whole country. Yeah, yeah. White people more than anybody else was yeah, stuck in Aryan and nobody said anything about yeah. that. It wasn't a black thing, Aryan. No, I know it Aryan wasn't. Aryan. No, I know. And yeah. it was terrible. Um, still then, is now. It still is now. And then you had the crack thing, which was massive for, for the black community. But somehow, Rastas bypassed that. And, and, and nobody really noticed that Rastas didn't really partake within that. But it, it was because we saw, we saw cannabis as our truly way of connecting with our spirituality. It had nothing to do with drugs. And I suppose now when cannabis is being heralded, you know, to the treetops now is one of the greatest um, cures for multiple sclerosis and everything. You have Maccabee? I heard Maccabee. Yeah, yes, Maccabee's yeah. always preaching about cannabis and it, you know, how good it is for you. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we're always preaching, but I think the medical now is starting to... To yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to. Have you heard of Jeff Ditchfield before? No. There's been, it's been on BBC program, um, Dying for Weed. I think the program he was. Yeah. He's he's the guy that gives out um, medicinal medicinal cannabis oils to children. Um, you know, from THC, CBD. He was actually doing a, a march in a Parliament last week for it and got arrested. Yes. Um, but you know, he's proved that there are benefits to it in more ways than one you know it's curing, yeah. curing cancer you put people in remission yeah, for so yeah. many years it's where you find the benefits I, yeah. I find because again if you talk to most rasters most rasters didn't even really smoke cannabis back in those days really rasters cooked with cannabis rasters, there's a very famous film that showed out true rasters in Jamaica okay saw cannabis in those what's days. it called it's called The Harder They Come Harder They Come yeah and it, it showed the time when the guy went into the hills and he got beaten up Okay. Yeah. And the Rastaman gave him a bag of a bag of, of herbs. Yeah. And he said to them, use this for medicine. He wasn't saying use this for <laughs> smoking. <laughs> because Rastas always saw it as something that you cook with, something that you eat. And it's with, great to cook with. Something that you drink tea with. Yeah. And it's a herb just like any other mint, sage or, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like that. It's when you abuse it, it becomes a drug. Yeah. Just like anything else. Mm. Um, so we always sort of stay away from that and say, you know, this is, you're using this as a culture, as a cultural thing. And that's how I've, I've managed to bypass the whole drug thing and being in the music and being very close to it and having people, friends that I know is falling by the wayside through drugs. And I've been so lucky that I, I went through it. I've never, absolutely, never been tempted and, and went through it because I saw it as part of my faith. Great. So with all of that coming from Jamaica, moving to Brixton, where did where did the businessman come? Where where did that come from? You know, where I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I got the impression when I saw you on Dragon's Den that you 
you hadn't really expected what was going to happen. You know, you were just going on there just to see how it goes. You know, where where did your aspirations come from? Is it is it something you always wanted to do? Did you did you know from a young age that you were gonna, uh, you know, be the man you are now, or even yeah. a small part of that? There is no difference than what my story and how I did it than many other um, people that I know. Yeah. Peter Jones, for instance. Yeah. Peter was never born an entrepreneur. No. He was never, he was a tennis no. coach for God's sake. You know, he failed a couple of times well. You know, he will tell you that himself. And it's one of the great things that he's now my mentor. And when he tells me things, he will tell me the bad and the good. Because he'll tell me how he failed in business. Yeah. And I know one ever believed in him and he lost money and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just like myself. I've, I've, I've never heard him say that publicly, absolutely, though. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You get his book and he will tell you of yeah. his failures, yeah. not of his triumphs, you know. But all his failures, okay. <laughs> all his failures. Yeah. And those are the ones that I like to hear of, mm, because I, right. I know him as a man of his success and I understand that. But I like to know the frailties as well so I can learn from, from the mistakes. Yeah. Because he's taught me that there's no such thing as mistakes. It's all about feedback. Yeah. So I, I, I like to dig into his story and try and get a bit of a feedback from them. So in my own life, I, I don't think he turned me into an entrepreneur overnight. I was always me. Yeah. <laughs> always capable of doing it from the days of the stuff that my grandma taught me, you know, to survive and, mm -hmm. you know, and how to turn, how to make something out of nothing. Yeah. That's very entrepreneurial. How when I was in school and I used to, you know, buy a pack of biscuits for, for 54 pounds, for instance. In, in those days money, you know, and sell back each individual one and make three pounds a yeah. day. I remember doing that as a kid as a kid. And now my friends remind me now, telling me, because we meet now, we talk and they say, Oh remember you Levi in school, how you used to be there. It didn't seem entrepreneurial then, but now when I look when we all look back when we see. So it was always there. But I think the important thing is about mentoring. It's about finding somebody that can turn your life around. Someone like Peter that lives a different mid-class life or if you're lucky enough to live that life, it's easy to find that. People to help you in that position, to help you to turn. Not to throw money at it, because I don't think when you say yeah, mentoring, just need the money, money is not about no, mentoring. No. Mentoring is about somebody can get into your head and, and actually say, look, look, fella, you know, this is what you do. And if you want it, this is how you get it. Yeah. Where I'm from, there wasn't a lot of that on offer. Yeah. So you find you have it in you, but you don't have the mentoring to help you to fight to get it out of you. Just it. needs to be released, doesn't released. it? Released. Yeah. I think when I met Peter and Jagger's then, the entrepreneur in me was released. You know, so it's, well, not, yeah. <laughs> it's not something that was founded just because I met these guys and you learned it. Because he doesn't know anything about brand. The brand is not regular the sauce. The brand is Levi Roots. That's right. Peter cannot be Levi Roots. <laughs> not bloody Too right. Yeah, he could up. never do that, he could he? He could never do it. No. He, he, there's nothing in the concept of what the brand is that anybody else can do apart from it. Sure, sure. You know, so it's obvious that it's it's in you, but it, it's his mentor. So did you... allowed to find that. I completely agree, you know. Um, I've been trying to find my way in business since I left the army some... I don't know, 12, 12 years ago. And um, it's only until recently, uh, like I said, I, I appeared on Dragon's Den. Didn't get investment, but for me, that's the best thing that could have ever happened to me because it made me realize a it few things. You. It inspires it, it you. It gives you another reason to look at things. Yeah. It doesn't say stop. That's what no, inspiration no, is. No, absolutely Inspiration not. doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, it's changed you know, me. It, yeah. All it does is just say to you, don't stop. 
yeah. carry on. It gives you that. Too right, yeah. And, and at what the same it, time, that's what you need. What it made me realise is, you know, it's really important, especially to the, the youngsters that are going to listen to this, and actually anybody that's in business is. It's only recently that I've realised the whole mentoring thing is so important Absolutely. to unlock certain things about you that you didn't realize were there and you know your capabilities because we can all sit in self-doubt easily um, and we all need help no one becomes you know like you say Peter Jones has had mentors Richard Branson's got mentors and all of them will say the reason they're there like you said is because of a mentor that can share some advice or or you get a top job you know you get a top job somewhere and your whole life starts that's true yeah hardly people get that opportunity but those do Leap up the ladder. Yeah, you know, very but there's some that aren't so you know as fortunate it's, it's to get there. Too late. No, it's not. Never no. too late because you're not going to find your mentor if you sit if you sit waiting on, on that right. person to turn that switch yeah. on. You've got to go up there. You've got to find your own luck. This is very true. Find, or you've got to find your mentor. You find your switch. It's in the dark, so it's <laughs> up in the dark, and you're going to find to switch your own self. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and that's what I switched on when I when I when I went into Dragons Den and I met Peter. Well, I had two investors, but they both of them weren't the same. Yeah. You know, I didn't have two in, two mentors. That's the difference. Yeah. So one. You know, I had two investors, but one mentor. Okay. Because Richard Farley invested in Reggae Reggae Sons. Is Richard still an investor now? No. No, he's gone. He brought his work. Well, I brought, it, brought him out. Is is Peter still? Of course, because he's still an investor. Absolutely, and a mentor. Yeah, of course, and a friend, no doubt. Yeah. So that's the difference between Richard and and him. Whereas Richard didn't become my mentor, he didn't really inspire me in that way, you know, to to try to flip that Levi switch and make me a better person. He invested, and it was great that he did because he he gave me the money and he got paid by Peter got inside and saw the opportunity to say I'm going to work with this guy I'm going to I'm going to switch on his Levi switch you know I'm going to help him to do that yeah and, and continue to work as 11 years ago and, and that's how mentoring works and you still share an office absolutely yeah how regularly how regularly do you see Peter now not a lot not a lot now since he's you know he's, he's brought this new company called Jessup's yes yeah which he's absolutely gone you know Amazon tongues into which you have to do when you spend this much right. money yeah as, as you that and and even I learned from that as well you know to see how he's completely put his faith into this thing and you know he's pumped in everything you know even his style and everything into it and he's going ahead and I I really admire him for mm. that, but it, it just takes us enough from having a drink as often as we used yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> so how, where did, is, is the restaurant, you know, we're sitting here now in your smokehouse here in Stratford yeah. City, and anybody listening, it's definitely worth coming down for, because I've had some food and it was absolutely delicious. Where did this come from? Is it, is it something you've wanted to do, or did you just see it as like, a, because of your products and your sauce do you think it's well it's a good thing for me to do or was it something that's kind of a dream no I, re- I actually wrote a book called you can get it if you really want yeah um, which is my only business book and in it I reproduced my original business plan before Dragon wow okay <laughs> so people could see that the dream wasn't just to say I want to go on and win and, and put some yeah. sauce in, yeah. in Tesco's and Sainsbury's it was about a restaurant yeah. The dream of having this place and to be able to, to bring Caribbean food to the masses. Yeah. I had plans to be on TV and to become a chef on TV yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So this is just a, 
you know, it's, it's finally come. It's, sort it's of come. Thing. It's a yeah. conveyor, conveyor belt that's been moving with my dreams, and it's come right now to the restaurant bit where I said that now. I've done the sauce. That's about Levi. Okay, so if we're getting close to it, so Levi, to end this for anybody that's listening. Um, have you any resources that people can look up, uh, whether they're children, whether they're in their 50s, 60s, are struggling with who they are, they still have aspirations? What advice can you give to anybody, whether they're looking for a job, a career, or whether they're looking to go into entrepreneurship? Yeah. yeah. Well, if you are, I think talking about people who are about to start going into business and looking back at my day and, and what I needed to do when I started. Yeah. Um, I needed to do two business plans when I started out. One was about the source to do that business plan and about the future and all that kind of stuff like that. But I think my most important business plan that I did was the business plan about myself when mm-hmm. I started out. Because I knew I knew bugger all about business. <laughs> I had to retrain myself. Yeah. But I'd been on stage for 20, 25 years being Levi Roots, the singer, the songwriter, the performer. But when just after I, I stopped that and got into the source business, I realized I needed to be Levi Roos the entrepreneur, which is different than yeah. Levi Roos the singer, the songwriter, the performer. So that's the business plan that I like to say to people you need to do is the one about yourself. Sure. Is to get yourself ready for business. But a lot of people forget that. You know, and you've got a nice fat business plan about the product, but you're still talking like you're on the streets, you know. Yeah, I know what you else. mean. Yeah, talking with your mates. Yeah, and, you know, and, and you're not you're not ready. You don't look the right way. You don't speak the right way. And it's sure. a very difficult thing to do. Mm. Something that you can keep up over a long time. Not something that is a, a flash in the pan. You have to absolutely remodel yourself um, to be able to be in a room with people like self, Charlie Sugar and Peter Jones and all these They're people, hard people, you know? aren't they? They are hard people. But they're all set and thinking the same way. And that's something that you can train yourself to do. And it's not a difficult one. It's just to get rid of your the street, the street you and bring in the new business you. And I think that's a really important advice for people. You have yeah. to get yourself ready for business. Yeah. Because if you're not ready then the business plan is not gonna is not gonna come through. So you know they both have to work hand in hand yourself the plan for yourself and the plan for the business as well so i guess it's believing in yourself isn't it really and, yeah, and absolutely. changing a mindset and i think that's the key thing you, you have to believe in everything but you have to listen as well because a lot of the time it is not your advice that makes the move it's the advice from someone else but you've got to action it you, you've got to make the decision yes whether to take that advice or not mm-hmm. but you need to be listening to a lot of people that come. You need to put yourself out there to make yourself able to can gather as much information as, as you can, like networking yeah. like crazy. Absolutely. Talking to as much people, learning the business, learning the market. You can never know too much. In my early days, I never used to be at home. I, wherever there was a chili festival or anything to do with food or whatever, you, you would see Levi Roots there with his guitar and with his sauces. <laughs> yeah. People got sick and tired of seeing me at this point. I never used to make any money, but I made the most noises. Yeah. And I think by the time when I got to Dragons, then everyone remembered this. You were recognized. That's the guy that we used yeah. to see coming in now. We know him. Wow, well, well done. It's great. Look, thank you so much for having me. It's been really insightful. I can't wait to listen back through it and edit it and find out how we can push it out. But if anyone wants to hook up with you uh, on social media, where yeah. can they find you? Yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place, man. I'm at Levi Roots Music. Okay. Um, or www.levyroots.com is the website. 
um, for here at the restaurant. Do you keep saying restaurant? It's a restaurant. Yeah, apologies, <laughs> restaurant. I'll get that right. www.levisemokehouse.com. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And it's great food, guys. You need to head down here for sure. So um, thank you, Levi. Cheers. So that was Levi Roots. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I think you'll agree that there was lots and lots of useful information from him in there. Um, very inspiring stuff, despite the uh, the reggae music and restaurant noises in the background. Um, we had such a great chat. So remember to check him out on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, please feel free to leave any comments. Um, on my Twitter, you'll find me on there at Magic Nick Stacy. Uh, you'll also find me on Instagram uh, under the name The Nick Stacy Podcast. Please do get in touch, follow me, and subscribe. Um, I love to stay in touch with everyone that listens, listen to my stuff. Um, you can also visit my website, which is nick-stacy.com. Uh, you can click on any of the links there and listen to my podcast through there or on Anchor. We're now also on Spotify, iTunes and Google Play. So feel free if you have any of these apps on your phone to subscribe to which one you prefer. But guys, look, thank you so, so much again for listening. As always, I'm completely overwhelmed with the amount of people that listen and the feedback that I get from you guys. Um, if you have any suggestions of people you'd like to hear on my show, please do send me an email to freebs, F-R-E-E-B-Z-E, -E, number 15, at gmail.com, and I will do my absolute best to get that person on there for you. But if you also have any other questions regarding the show, feel free to send messages in. So once again, thank you so much for listening. Take care, and I will see you all soon.